Ephesians 1, we will be looking this morning at verses 5 and 6. Our title of our sermon is Adopted in Love. And our key words for worshipers in training are adoption, child, and love. Now I have a friend named Jason Delgado. He is an elder of a Reformed Baptist church in Texas. And Jason and his wife, Vanessa, are the parents of five children. Their oldest is a daughter. Her name is Kenya, and they have, um, they have had twin girls named Melody and Madison. And their youngest are their two sons, Judah and Anton. And they were born on the same day, but they weren't twins. In 2008, they had twin girls... Uh, Melody and Madison, and they were born conjoined, conjoined twins. They shared a liver and a heart. And after they were born, they lived for one hour, and sadly, they died. Later, they had their son, Judah. Judah was completely healthy. But what they didn't know at that same time, on that same day, in Moscow, Russia, In 2010, their other son was being born, their son named Anton. Now, Anton was born with a healthy twin brother, but Anton had a rare genetic disorder called uh, epidermomolosis bullosa, or EB is what they call it for short. Basically, a person with EB does not have collagen 7 in their body, which is the sort of glue that holds the top layer of skin to the next layer of skin. So in essence... Anytime the skin is rubbed, there's any friction, it causes blisters, and if it's rubbed too much, it peels off completely. There's no cure for it, there's no real treatment. It also causes a tremendous amount of scarring, so in time, as it happens to fingers and toes, they begin to fuse together and become useless. In 2011, Vanessa read a story about Anton on her friend's Facebook page, and Anton's birth mother had decided that while she had twins, because of Anton's um, disease, she would not keep him. So he was left in an orphanage while she kept his twin brother. So Jason and Vanessa, having lost two children already, decided that the Lord had prepared them to adopt a child with such a severe disability. So in 2012, Anton was brought to the United States and he became their son. Since then, Jason and Vanessa have sought to provide all of the greatest treatments that are available for people with EB. However, there is no cure, as I said. And at this very moment, Anton is in the hospital. He is very, very sick. He's undergone surgery and different treatments to try and eliminate infection that he currently has. And on Thursday, they found out a surgery he had to repair a hole in his intestines was unsuccessful. So it's only a matter of hours, maybe days, before Anton dies. Now, I tell you this story so you can pray for this family. I've posted updates for some of you to see on Facebook. You can see who he is and what he's going through. I've been thinking about Anton a lot. And when I came to our text this morning, I cannot help but see this parallel between what God does in adopting us. Knowing who we are, knowing what we would be, knowing all of the difficulties and all of the baggage that comes along with our lives. 
I see a parallel between that and people like Jason and Vanessa adopting a son with such a severe disability that very likely meant he would never live into adulthood. There's risk. There's heartbreak. There's hardships and sorrows. There's no sense of normalcy. And yet they would tell you right now that they'd do it all over again without any hesitation whatsoever. It's easy to sit back and to say, why? Why would you do that? Why put yourselves in that place, in that situation, knowing the difficulties, knowing the sorrows that come with those kinds of things? But did you know that God, before he created the world, that God knew He knew what you would be. He knew what you would say. He knew all that you would do. He would know all the times that you would live recklessly and sinfully, and yet he determined that he was going to save you. Knowing that having you as a child meant he would have someone who was imperfect, who was continually having to sort through all of your temptations and all of your fleshly desires, And sometimes falling into those temptations. Sometimes doing things completely contrary to his word. And sometimes doing outright evil and blasphemous things. He knew all of that. He knew you would do those things. He knew what kind of person you would be and the ways you would seek to run and hide and justify everything in your life. And yet, as we saw last week in our text in verse 4, he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. I hope you've thought about that this week. And as we look to another one of the spiritual blessings that are ours in the heavenly places, because we are in Christ Jesus, we will see this morning the blessing of adoption. If you are a Christian, you have been adopted. You've been adopted as a son or a daughter of God, not because you were perfect or worthy or sinless, but because God loves you. And he has purposed that your life would be lived on purpose to the praise of his glorious grace. So let's read the text. If you're in the blue ESV Bible, it's page 976. We're going to look at verses 5 through 6. But let's begin again in verse 1 so we can have the full context. The Apostle Paul begins in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now remember we said last week that verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 is where Paul is masterfully writing about the work of each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this great work of redemption. 
And we said last week, we're getting a glimpse, a, a picture. We're getting this small look into the covenant of redemption. This covenant that God the Father made with God the Son to save a people from the penalty of sin in exchange for a spotless bride called the church. So what is the Father's role in fulfilling his obligation in this covenant between he and his son. That's what we're going to see in our text this morning. (coughs) So the first thing for us to look at is that God the Father predestines his children in love. Now, when chapter and verse numbers were added to the Bible in about the 15th century, I have no idea why the two words, in love, were left at the end of verse 4 because they belong with verse 5. So just know the numbers and chapters are not inspired. They were added for our help. And sometimes it's a little bit screwy how they did it. But we see these marvelous words. The very last two words of verse 4, beginning, In love he predestined us. Now last week we looked at the doctrine of divine election and quite often people will think and speak of election and predestination interchangeably. A sharp distinction (coughs) doesn't need to be made between the two because they're essentially addressing the same thing. However, they do have a bit different usage and why Paul uh, mentions both words. Election or concepts anyway. Election, as we saw last week, is God's eternal decree to choose specific individuals to be born again and made new creations in Jesus Christ. And that choosing was done before the foundations of the world. So, as God foreknew the fall of mankind, he decreed that particular individuals would be saved and their names be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. These are the people who are to make up the true church of God, and in the end they will be given over to Jesus Christ by the Father as the bridegroom who is spotless and undefiled in the eyes of God. The Father is giving the bride to the bridegroom. This is the just reward for Jesus' obedient fulfillment of the covenant of redemption. So election, we can think of it as a subset of predestination. Predestination is essentially the general term for God's sovereign ordaining. It means to determine beforehand, to declare beforehand. And people will tell you all the time, I don't believe in predestination. Well, it's in the Bible. It's a word in the Bible. We have to deal with it. So you may not agree with a certain interpretation of what that is, but you can't say I don't believe it because it's here. It's in the text. So what does it mean? It means to determine beforehand. And the way Paul uses the word predestination is in reference to a plan itself. It's a broader category under which election falls along with other things. So, for example, Luke writes in the book of Acts that Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, did to Jesus what God's plan had predestined to take place. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. Psalm 139, 16 says that all of our days are written in God's book before one of them comes to pass. Okay, so he predestined the days that we would live before they came to pass. I think a good summary of um, 
what's going on here is in the Heidelberg Catechism. It says, every form of prosperity and affliction comes to us not by chance, but from God's fatherly hand. So you see, God's predestining things to happen simply means that he predetermined and planned that they would take place, and that concept expands beyond redemption. Charles Spurgeon said, it is common sense that whatever God does in time, he predestined to do in eternity. And that is, of course, because the Bible tells us that God knows the end from the beginning, and we can reason it is because he has planned it all from the beginning. That's predestination. Election, however, is more specific to redemption. And it's very specific as to particular individuals. Another way to say it, predestination is the original purpose and in order to bring that to pass, certain people had to be taken hold of, to be made holy, because without being holy, they could not possibly stand in the presence of God. So election was necessary since God had predetermined that he would save a people as a just reward for his son. Now, as it pertains to individuals... It should also be said that God has predestined a purpose for each of us. And one of the beautiful things about being a Christian and knowing the great things God has revealed to us in his word is that we can know that God has determined that we have specific purpose to fulfill. Now, of course, the great big grand purpose is to glorify God. But as individuals, we're created with purpose, and that purpose was predestined, and that purpose is played out in the way that God gifts us, the talents and the gifts that God gives us to use in our lives, whether it's in the church or in our workplaces, in our homes. We have purpose, and the difference between a Christian and everyone else is that we can know that is true. And so when the world is trying to find, uh, trying to find their way, and what they're going to do with their lives and never coming to conclusions and never being settled and feeling like the things they're doing matter, we can be sustained by this reality that we have significant purpose. And that what I'm doing here on earth, so long as it's according with biblical principles, is leading to something greater that will fulfill the ultimate purpose of glorifying God. In World War II, there was a Nazi concentration camp in Hungary where the Jews were made to do work in a sewage plant. It was unpleasant work, but it was work that they were able to continue to do because they were sustained by the thought that they were doing something productive. They were doing something that was helpful in some way. But at one point, the sewage plant was destroyed by Allied bombers, so the Nazi officers decided that the prisoners would shovel sand in carts, and they would drag the sand to another place on the camp and dump it out. And the next day, they would go and shovel what they did the day before, put it in carts, and drag it back and dump it again. And they did this over and over and over again for weeks. And finally, an old man that was there, he broke and he began to weep uncontrollably and he was hauled away by the guards. And another screamed in agony until he was beaten in silent, into silence and, and another young man who worked in the camp for, for three years, 
in this sewage plant before it was bombed, now that they were doing this kind of work, he ran from the group and he threw himself onto an electrified fence. And the stories go on. Dozens of dozens of prisoners were driven mad and killed because they thought it better to die than to live without any purpose at all, even working in a sewage plant in a death camp. So a lot of Christians want to say that getting a grasp on something like predestination isn't important. What's important is just knowing we're saved. But I hope you see it's much more to that because not only is your redemption something that is planned before the foundations of the world, but your purpose. God predestined that his people, his his. His elect would be saved and would live, but not just that we would live, but that we would live with a reason behind all of it, a purpose behind all of it. And all of it would serve the greater and more magnificent end that he has determined. When you're scrubbing the dishes or when you're changing your oil, if you know how to do that, or when you're at your desk and you're filling out a report that nobody's going to read, or completing assignment that will never be utilized the way you hope it would be. You can look beyond it as a Christian and say, God has predetermined that my life will be filled with purpose. And so no matter what I'm doing here, I can look beyond that. I don't know all the details. I don't know how all of it comes together in the end. I don't know how all of this is going to be used for by God for my good and for his glory, but I do know that it will because he has predetermined that it will. And brothers and sisters, we should have this reality in our minds, not only in our work, but even in the midst of our trials, even in the midst of our upsets and our heartbreak and our suffering. You are not going through whatever you are going through, whatever it is, You're not going through it without God not having predestined that it would take place to fulfill a greater purpose. He's not aloof when it comes to your suffering. He's not uninterested in your daily chores or your most grievous heart-wrenching realities in life. No, he predetermined that they would be what they are so that you could live out a purpose to bring about his greater ends. And I hope that gives us greater satisfaction and greater peace and greater hope and that it would rest in our heart so that when we lay down at the end of a long day, a difficult day, we can say, it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. I don't know how. But I am assured that before the foundations of the world, it was determined that it would be. Praise be to God. And one of the reasons we can know this is true is because we are promised in God's word that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we have received something that comes only to those that God has predestined to elect that we might live to a meaningful end. One of our great blessings is called sonship. And our second point this morning is that God the Father adopts his children in Jesus Christ. You'll often hear people say things like, we are all God's people. We are all the children of God. 
But what does the Bible say about that? If that were true, then Paul's words here would be essentially meaningless, and the idea of sonship would be nonsensical. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to see in verse 3 where the apostle tells us that prior to salvation, we were fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind and were by nature children of, not God, children of wrath. Likewise, when Jesus was confronting the Pharisees in John chapter 8, he tells them, you are of your father, the devil. If God were your father, you would love me. In other words, if you don't love Jesus, you cannot claim God as your father. If you do not love Jesus, you are not a child of God. The scriptures say you are a child of Satan. Consider John's words in John chapter 1 and verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not that they were, but they became children of God. So clearly what, what, what John is saying is that we were once not the children of God, but in Christ we become the children of God. And so the logical conclusion is that unless one is in Jesus Christ, they are not the children of God and do not have the right to be called the children of God or to regard themselves as children of God. So just a few weeks ago, I know all of you, follow Pope Francis very closely on Twitter. So I'm sure you saw this. Sam pointed it out to me, so if you want to know why I'm reading Roman Catholic stuff, talk to him. The Pope tweeted this. Christians and Muslims are brothers and sisters, and we must act as such. So in less than 140 characters, the Pope denies the vital doctrine of sonship to say that we are brothers and sisters with those who completely reject the divinity, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, the Pope of Rome is neither right nor a Christian, so it's no surprise that he would say such a thing. However, this is indicative of how the world thinks, isn't it? And so all of our talk about Jesus being the only way, all of our talk about the necessity of faith in Christ is so repulsive and so unnecessary to the world because the idea is we're all the children of God. But look at the text. It's essential that we remember that Paul is writing to whom? He's writing to Christians. Remember, and he told us in verse 1 that the audience are the saints of God. That's us if we are in Christ. So as Christians, we know the Father has predestined us, and the object of what he's writing here is to show us that as Christians, we no longer belong to the family of the world. Before we were Christians, we were brothers and sisters with Muslims. But not anymore. We are a people, we saw last week, who were chosen and set apart to be holy and blameless to stand before God, in love, no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, no longer the children of wrath. We are a people who have become Christians, and as Christians, we have been made children of God. And how do we become children? 
by being adopted through the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see the repeated emphasis even in these, these six verses. We see in him and by him and through him and at the end of verse six, in the beloved, over and over and over again, showing that only in Christ does one become a child of God. And notice the particular way in which Paul uses that language here. When he writes in verse four, he says we are chosen in Christ that we should be holy and blameless. That is because of our union with Christ, we will be declared holy and blameless. But in verse five, he says we are adopted through Jesus Christ. So you see, it is because we are united to Christ that we are called holy and blameless. It is through the work of Christ that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. If you are a Christian, you are a child of the living God. And I hope that sinks in for all of us as we hear those words. You know, our mission statement as a church begins with these words. Ephesus Church is a family of faith. How is it that we are a family? Well, if you and I are both Christians, we are adopted into God's family. So that means we are siblings. We are brothers and sisters together. So you see, God has not just invited individuals to become Christians. He chooses, he calls, he adopts, he makes them his own children. And we saw back in Galatians, and and we read in Romans this morning, the great privilege of that is that we call him Abba, Father. And so often, Christians live lives like, like they're still orphans, like people who were left in an orphanage without a father. Forgetting all along that we are sons and we are daughters because of what Jesus has done to purchase, to put the payment forward that we could be adopted. So instead of enduring the wrath of God throughout eternity as Christians, we have been loved. And we will never be loved more or less than the day we were justified. So I hope you have this picture in your mind. This picture that God looked out among a multitude of orphans and he chose those whom he would adopt and call his own. And he made the legal transaction in Jesus Christ who made the penalty to purchase us as orphans. And the transfer was made and our legal status changed. I'm no longer a son of the evil one. I am now a son of the holy and righteous one. I'm no longer a son of disobedience, no longer a child of wrath. Now I'm a child of the king who has obtained my eternal inheritance. Now today, as brothers and sisters in Christ, not a single one of us has a greater standing than the other before God. But all of us are on equal footing, counted as holy and blameless. If you're a parent, I used to do this to my, what did I say used to? I still do this to my parents today. I always try to get them to admit to me that I am, in fact, their favorite child. I know it's true. I'm still working on it. I still have some time with them, I hope. I can get it out of them. But what do parents always say when their kids ask that? Oh, you're all my favorites. 
or, you know, when they're little, well, you're my favorite six-year-old. And so when I was six, my brother was two years older, I would remind my mom, well, he was six at one time, so I'm more favorite at six than he was at six. But before God, think of God as our father. He doesn't have favorite children. We're all on equal footing before him, holy and blameless, in Christ, because of Christ. And you know this distinction of brother and sister among Christians should not be taken lightly. To call another Christian brother or sister is to affirm a mutual standing with them as a child of God. And the, the important distinction is saying we have the same father who has rescued us and has adopted us and calls us his own. And as a result, I now call you my brother or my sister. These aren't just words. Culturally, especially the word brother, it's tossed around a lot. But it shouldn't be unless... We're talking with someone who truly is our brother or our sister because we're communicating something deeply theological in that word. The church of Jesus Christ is not a gathering of acquaintances, is not a gathering of friends, it's not even a gathering of just fellow church members. To be a Christian is to be in a relationship with others that is far greater than even our blood relationships. A lot of us have family members who are not Christians. And what we understand from adoption into God's family is that your family of, you're in the family of God's people. And that's far more significant than your family even here on earth because the family we are adopted into will dwell together forever and ever. And just in case you're worried, it won't be like Thanksgiving where we might have to tolerate a few people but we have genuine love and affection for one another in our relationships, and it will be marked by everlasting peace. So you see, the implications of our adoption are vast. It should change the way we look at one another, right? How do you live with and for your brother or sister? You live and work and respond to and love one another in a way that reflects the unbreakable bonds that we know to exist among siblings. You know, sometimes you'll look at the way siblings interact and you will say, why are you doing that for them? Why are you going to that extent for them? It's foolish. Why do you keep going after them? Why do you keep engaging them? Why do you keep doing these things? Well, it's my brother. It's my sister. Are they acting foolishly? Maybe. But I can't give up on them. That's what the church is together. That's how it ought to be. That's who God made us to be. We are to sacrifice for one another, to encourage one another, to speak well of each other, to to handle our conflicts with a great desire to restore broken and damaged relationships, to, to hold tightly to one another, even in difficult times when the things of tomorrow are uncertain. Christians rejoice together, we weep together, we do not walk out on one another, we seek to fulfill the scriptures. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. 
Christians see themselves as members of a family, united with brothers and sisters with a common goal of glorifying God and enjoying him forever together. And friends, there are some of you here this morning who are not a part of the family of faith, and we cannot call you brother or sister because you are not in Christ. We are adopted as children of God when we have faith in Jesus Christ. Repenting of our sin, being made new creations in Jesus Christ, no longer children of the evil one, but children of God. You do not have to live your life as an orphan, though. God is the greatest of all fathers. I'll tell you what, you may have a terrible father. You may have a father that you don't even know or hardly exists in your life. But God is the greatest of all fathers. He will never disappoint. He will never fall back on his promises. He will never treat us harshly. He will never treat us unjustly. God is a never-failing father. And he calls on us to cry out to him, to acknowledge our sinfulness before him, and to repent of that sinfulness. He is willing, he is able to save you, and he will not turn you away when you come to him. Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life, and no one is adopted as a son of God but through him. Are you trusting in Jesus? Well, one final point this morning. God the Father blesses his children in the beloved. All that God has done, we are told repeatedly throughout this chapter, and we have emphasized over the last few weeks, is done how? To the praise of his glorious grace. God's glory is manifest in our salvation. Paul writes at the end of verse 6, in the beloved. Every blessing that we now enjoy as children of God is always in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I risk being redundant here. However, I think it's vitally important that we understand that this is the greatest and most ultimate reason that God has made us to be his children. It is first and foremost for his purposes to be fulfilled. And if you look at verses 1 through 6, you'll notice that only in verses 4 and 6 is the name Jesus Christ not mentioned explicitly, but even those in verse 4, Paul writes, in him, referring to Jesus, and in verse 6, in the beloved Jesus. So, Jesus is referenced in every single verse we've looked at, and even twice in verses 1 and 3. So I think we can say quite confidently that Paul is very concerned with us having a vital understanding of the purpose and the role and the significance of Jesus Christ. But it is significant that Paul switches his language here and he calls Jesus, now he calls him, the Beloved. The whole of Scripture emphasizes that our salvation is a result of the love and grace and mercy of God. But if we really want to know something of the truth of what God has done, we must know something of the truth of the beloved. If someone wants to talk about the love of God without talking about Jesus Christ, they know nothing of the love of God. To know about the love of God 
We have to know what has happened in the beloved and to the beloved. It is in him and who he is and what he has done and what he has been given in and through what he has done that we can measure the love of God. The very fact that God sent him into the world is a shocking reality in and of itself. It was the Father who sent him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And only when we get that can we know something of the love of God and how it is that we are blessed by God. It was his beloved Son that has been sent to fulfill the most horrific errand in the history of the world for people like you and me. Imagine it. Jesus, under the weight of his own cross, staggering up Golgotha, and we see him nailed to a tree, and the Father's looking down on it all. And the beloved is, is finally rejected and despised by men. He's spat upon, he's scourged, he's hated, he's reviled, he's nailed to a cross. And there's no way we can even begin to conceive of the agony and the suffering and all of the shame that's involved. And the father looks as his beloved endures hatred and the scorn of sinners That is the measure of God's love because it was all for you and for me. Paul writes in Romans 8, he spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. God the Father loved his son with an eternal love from all eternity and with all of the intensity of his being and even though he is the beloved for you and for me that we would be blessed in him he did not spare him he laid upon him the iniquity of us all he struck him down and he determined that the beloved would suffer the stripes that we deserve and why so that you and I might be forgiven this is what it means to be blessed in the beloved God making his beloved a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And the height of it all that no mind can fathom is that when we stand at the foot of the cross and Jesus hangs there in agony, in the moment before he dies, you hear those chilling words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everyone else has forsaken him. His disciples had fled. All of his people he had healed and served were gone and nowhere to be found. But now he even cries out to the Father. The beloved of the Father cries out, My God, my God, where are you? Think of it. He has basked in the eternal Sunshine of the love of the Father from all eternity. Never once, not a moment of intermission in their love. But here for the very first time in all of eternity, he loses sight of the face and the smile of the Father. Why? To bless you in him. 
And if he shrunk from that, we would never be saved. We would never be forgiven. We would never be Christians. We would never be adopted as children of God. And so he descended to death and to the grave. And he went into the lowest parts of the earth, having descended from the highest place in heaven. Why? For us and our salvation. So that God could bless us and the beloved to the praise of his glorious grace. So what does all of this mean when Paul says he's blessed us in the beloved? It means we are loved by God even as his son was loved by him. Do you think that goes too far? Does that cross a line? If Jesus himself hadn't said it, I wouldn't believe it. But Jesus said it in John 17, 23, that God the Father loves us even as he loves the beloved. Brothers and sisters, the truth about the one who is in Christ is that because we are in Christ and because we are adopted as sons and daughters of God in Christ, God the Father loves us as he has loved his own son. We share in the intimacy and the communion with God that is shared with the son himself. Why? Why us? For what reason? Because even though God knew that we would be who we are and what we are. And even though God knew our lives would be filled with recklessness and sin and we would leave a trail of heartbreak and sorrow, he loved us anyway and he adopted us legally that we would become his very own children. And so the father loves us as he loves our elder brother, Jesus Christ. It is absolutely staggering I hope that satisfies your soul, that God loves you in the way that he loves his very own son. We share in that love. Have you ever been tempted to think that God is not for you? That God is not fair to you? That God does not care about your trials and your suffering in your life? Never entertain such a thought again whether you understand it or or feel it, when it's all crashing down around you, you know this. In Christ, your elder brother, because he is the beloved, you are the beloved of God also. Brother, sister, God is our father and truly does love you. And we can live forever forever and for him and with him to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen.